out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. If only. Hello and welcome to The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. And as always, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of censor because I spoke to vocalist Hathan Al-Sayed very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff that happens when you're in a indie, rap, industrial, hip-hop band as censor were. Anyway, this is the interview and after a lot of casual chat to begin with, mostly about haircuts, this is, the, this is that period of lockdown when things are being unlocked again. Hairdressers being one of them. We got down to those, uh, yes, formative teen years. And um, yes, I asked Hatham a bit about his own background and those early growing years. This is his reply. Hatham, take it away. Um, well, I grew up, I spent 10 years in Saudi Arabia. When I was born there. And um, in the seventh in the seventies, I'm a few years, just a couple of years younger than you. So um, uh, I grew up, <clears throat> and uh, in the seventies and early eighties in Saudi Arabia, there was obviously lots of Arabic music, and there was um, a fair amount of Western music that you could buy on cassettes. Uh, there were little kind of tiny shops that sold it. It was a little bit frowned upon because uh, there'd been a sort of uh, wave of Islamic uh, kind of fundamentalism that swept across uh, Saudi Arabia in the sort of late 70s, early 80s, um, as a sort of echo of what was going on in Iran. And um, so there was lots of Arabic music, but a lot of kind of disco stuff, whatever was in the charts at the time. Uh, Yeah, you'd hear like Tina Charles and Boney M and and Michael Jackson and all this kind of stuff. Uh, my mum had uh, some Beatles records out there and I found them really kind of so strange that they were almost scary. I found the White Album pretty, like a scary thing yeah. when I was little, but I really, I loved it. Um, but I, you know, for a kid, it's quite hard to understand what's going on on those things like Glass Onion and that's a yes. spooky song and and um, that I'm So Lonely, I, what that I'm so lonely. Mm, it's, uh, if I ain't dead already, uh, you know the reason why. I, that that kind of stuff freaked and all the psychedelic stuff. But I was sort of fascinated by that. But the first time that I got into music, like started getting into music on my own terms, was electro or hip hop. What was it originally? I was at some kind of weird summer camp with a group called the Woodcraft Folk. Oh my god! Which, uh, electro- Do you know what it is? Yes. Well, I, I, you know, got into that kind of slightly hippie, new agey world, um, sort of. Right. I was always slightly interested, but, you know, it was, it was kind of a few years later because festivals had slightly petered out. You know, there'd been those kind of, there'd been the Stonehenge ones, but they were also quite rough. There'd been a lot of ones in the 70s in East Anglia, the Barsham fairs and East Anglian fairs, and they'd all kind of been hammered a bit with, I mean, basically, from what I found out, is is kind of the travelling community, the convoy, the peace convoy, mm-hmm. had slightly hammered it. But a lot of them, the a lot of people started putting on camps and wood the woodcraft folk. And then there was like 
other kind of 10 day events where you had a lot of singing and music and dancing, you know, kind of new agey kind of circle dance stuff. So the Woodcroft right. were quite, you know, they took that baton, didn't they? Alternative England. Kind of, but they were, because they were like an organized, it was an organization. It wasn't free form. Um, Alexis Sale described it as the paramilitary wing of the co-op, which I thought was a perfect description of that weird organization. And it, it was actually really good for, for me when I was a little kid to sort of get out there and see, you know, be outside, you know, living from living in London. Um, anyway, I was at this thing and, and some kid had this cassette and it was like a spaceship had landed. It was the weirdest sounding music, but we just loved it. We were like, this sounds incredible. It was all, more or less all electronic. So by today's standards, it would be called Electro, I suppose, like Africa Bombata and Nafish and Johnson Crew. And um, it was like early, what we used to call in England, Electro, I suppose. Yes. And um, the other side had some kind of breaks and stuff. And I tried to figure out years later where that might have come from, that cassette. But um, it, it's probably from a, like the Danceteria or the Mud Club or something in New York. Someone had just taped a set. It was before the electro vinyl series came out in the UK. Yes. So um, I was really lucky to be exposed to this kind of really, ex I was so excited by this music and we just kind of adopted it. And then we'd sort of discovered hip hop and breaking and, uh, you know, graffiti and all that over the next couple of years. And we realized that it was part of something bigger. And um, in terms of guitars and heavy music, the first time I think I really came into contact with something heavy, was when I went to see uh, a, the Rocky movie and they had the Eye of the Tiger as the soundtrack. And I was a little kid, so I was very impressed by that. that just the kind of the punchiness of it, the stabbiness of it was, and the heaviness. I was like, this is cool. You yes. know, we, uh, so I, I bought that cassette. And uh, so I think that's the origins sort of, of my, the first thing I, I well, mean, I when I was... I, was I, like say, I remember. I remember that Electro Street Sound series. I can't remember something. Yeah. Khan was the guy mm -hmm. who was the kind of owner of it. Yeah, and he was a kind of entrepreneur. I can't remember his name. Uh, something Khan, and I remember he'd organised this event in 1986 called I don't know Fresh '86, which took place. Oh, at, I was that. I was at there as well. Really? I had, uh, yes, I was there. I, I still got my T-shirt. I still got the NME. With no way! You've got a Fresh '86 T-shirt. No, That's... no, I've got the, I've got various bits, but I've also got, I've still got some NMEs. Jesus Christ, this is slightly going off, off piece. But sometimes, you know, when you do your sort of bit of fine and you come across old magazines, I haven't got it here. But there was That's kind crazy. of like Fresh eighty six because I was really obsessed with that kind of, uh, you know, John Peel was playing stuff, and I thought I must start buying this stuff as well. And there was like Man. people like, you know, Roxanne Chante and Mantronics and all yeah, that kind of. And an African Barbata was there, and there was the real Roxanne who did that song called Bang Boom. Sh I don't know. Bang Zoom, take it to the moon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, there was all that stuff. And uh, yeah, man, I, I don't know how old I it must have been like 13 or 14. Yeah, Wembley Arena. And I remember the, the noise of people's whistles, it was like the bass. Yeah. And then the whistling, and it was like your eardrums got hammered. Yeah, no, no. I, I remember it just thinking, like, 
I couldn't believe that it was like a stadium gig of the kind of music that I, I'd never been to any gigs. That was the first thing that I, I completely forgot that. Yeah, that must be the first show that I ever went to. And it yeah. was Fresh 86. All yeah. day. It was all day. And it was just that kind of make some noise. And oh no, not oh, whistles again. 15. It's easy to remember, isn't it? Because it's 86. I would have been 15 then. Yeah. But uh, man, it, complete, yeah, I kind of, I haven't thought about that for ages. Yes. Yeah. And I, I remember, you know, because John Peel was fantastic because he would play, you know, like the best African song or the best reggae song or the best, well, in my opinion, indie song, you know, and he just threw it into one show. So you'd kind of, he'd play all that Tila Rock and Steady B and, you know, yeah. like Sweet Tea and stuff like that and Public Enemy's mm. first album, Yo Bum Rush the Show. And it was like, oh, LL Cool J. And, and you know, it was like, it was just exciting, <laughs> you know, and, and you had to go and see these gigs. So So when did you start thinking you wanted to, you know, because because it's interesting doing this show because because being a, you know it's mostly indie pop I suppose because about eighty three day seven was when indie was really happening which is also the years right. of the Smiths and then you know eighty seven you know the Smiths break there's a lot of bands who had been together for a while and they'd all had a bit of you know they got fed up ecstasy came in there was a whole kind of let's go dancing instead you mm -hmm. know with the Soup Dragons and the Stone Roses and Primal Scream so that was kind of big. And and that took over quite a bit. And then obviously you had the Seattle grunge scene and a lot, but there was a few other bands that kept struggling on, even though it was a little bit like the scene had changed, like the Sundays and Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine and right. Lush and Silverfish and the Faith. Mm -hmm. So there was a, and My Bloody Valentine. So they kind of struggled on underneath that kind of the fad. I suppose there was a, that people have musical fad. So when did you start thinking you wanted to form a, a band? <clears throat> I I didn't I I didn't want to form a band and I wasn't trying I never formed a band I you know it wasn't me that formed Censor um that it was they already existed as a very strange kind of hybrid musical hybrid where it was kind of a little bit more psychedelic a little bit more airy a little bit more kind of post ecstasy sounding um but yeah it's hard to explain what it sounded like but um uh it wasn't indie-ish really it was maybe it, it's hard to say they it was just but the guitarist i, I knew that i liked heavy music i i by that time i sort of by the time sensor sort of started to do stuff i was into heavy stuff and i was into hip-hop and i was quite open-minded and uh they knew that i could rap because i me and the drummer and the bass player, um, not the current drummer, the drummer at the time, um, we used to sit in his bedroom and listen to a lot of hip hop. And there were some things that we just loved. And there was a few British hip hop things, I would say specifically Gunshot. There was a band, a kind of group through, trio called Gunshot, which was just amazing, incredible rap skills, British rap skills. Uh, and set, the sound was really good. And we, and so, yeah, they knew I could rap and they asked me to rap on a song and it sounded okay, you know. And they were, so we did it live as part of their set. And I was just kind of hanging out with them, going to gigs with them. And um, so were they part of a collective? Because I remember a lot of other 
a lot of bands in that 80s, especially, and there were a lot of people who came from Australia, just came and squatted in London, you know, because there was just like a lot of squats, you know, there was venues as well, like the ambulance station that people used to sort of be there and they put events and gigs on and stuff like that. So was it a bit of that alternative culture that was kind of developing? There, we, we weren't, if there was, it, it, we weren't sort of part of it. We, we we were kind of we were in sort of suburban South London around Rains Park and Wimbledon Chase and like you know very bland places. They were, but we weren't part of any scene. The closest, the kind of closest decent musicians to us was a, group, a band called the Osric Tentacles, and they were kind of much more affiliated with the psychedelic scene uh, in in. But we, we, and they sort of adopted us a little bit and took us with them on tour. So that was a big break for us. They were, they were filling out big rooms. But in terms of a scene or a community, kind, I mean, okay, I knew this guy, Rick, who had a little fanzine and it was based around this um, re rehearsal studios in Kennington. If I, you know, it's all a bit hazy now, but uh, he, uh, so yeah, he knew a lot of bands. He knew like Silverfish, I think. He knew Daisy Chainsaw. And he wrote about us in this, this fanzine because we were kind of completely out of nowhere, really. It wasn't anything sounding much like what we were doing. So I'm trying to get the, the, the timeline straight in my head, but yeah, we would have been more associated with bands like here and now, Osric Tentacles, uh, the Magic Mushroom Band, simply because there was a slight psychedelic element to what we were doing in the guitars, and there was heavy guitars as well in there. Um, but now I don't think we could be associated with anything because not you could pretty much put us on any bill and people would still sort of stare at it <laughs> and in disbelief. Yes, you know? I know. I know Chumbawamba had a bit of a go at sort of. I don't know exactly you know when, but that must have been, that was the 90s where they'd started getting someone rapping on some of their songs as well. You know, I can't remember their name, actually. Um, honestly, I, oh yeah, maybe they got the guy from Credit to the Nation. Yes, that that's the one, and um, I, Enough is Enough or something like that. Or um, Yes, yes. Okay, so by that point, you know, for me, if you, I was, I was the, what we were just discussing, there would have been like a few years before that, when we were just starting up. Um, but yeah, we weren't, we never met Chumbawamba until much later, like a three or four years, three years later, I think. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, like all that sort of alternative, slightly Grebo scene adopted us, Populi itself, um, the Levelers, and I know this is going to upset people, but I never really liked their music. <laughs> <laughs> I never really, it, it was, it was, but it was, I mean, they, they were really kind to us and they took us to, to some very, they put us on, on some very big shows. Well, um, yes. I mean, the levelers have gone from some sort of like smallish kind of art center band to suddenly playing arenas to the headline at Glastonbury. And they, they had that particular album, you know, with one way on and, and suddenly yes. that world of kind of, you know, fest it was real festy vibes, wasn't it? With, you know, yeah. with the didgeridoo I, and stuff. I like didn't that. like that stuff. I wasn't really down for that stuff. But the thing is, 
those festivals were, were, were the place where it was kind of happening at that moment. You know, you had to kind of say, we're going to walk fearlessly among all this stuff <laughs> and do our thing because uh, this is where the, peak, the, the, the young people are, the people that want to buy records and hear bands. And, you know, we weren't a hip hop. It wasn't because, you know, we would never have got asked to play on hip hop bills. We never did. We met other bands who had that element to them, like Credit to the Nation, Gunshot, um, uh, Collapse Lung, uh, all those bands where there was, it was kind of around, based around rap. Yeah. But we, yeah, we, we, uh, we had to go to those festivals. And to be fair, it, the kind of people that we played to, um, stayed with us forever and it also introduced us to heavy metal festivals but at the beginning we would have been slightly too oddball for heavy metal but heavy metal at that time was going through some sort of a bit of a crisis you know all the old guard were getting a bit old and a bit and then glam was just you know it like you say it was like glam metal which i now really really love at the time i kind of hated it i'm it's weird. It's weird how you, you sort of see things differently. Yes. But I love all glam metal now. I think it's really good. It's like really working class music, you know. <laughs> Not that, 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 that LA scene which you're referring to with the whole sort of big hair, it was hard to get yep. beyond the, the, the image the vin- and, and, the, and the videos and the kind of like, oh my God, this is just... I didn't, I hated it at the time because of the image, but now I listen to that, those songs and I think they sound great. I honestly, bands like Rats and, uh, and uh, uh, Motley Crue, I, I like a lot. I went to see them a couple of years ago and it sounded amazing. They were such a good band. Yeah. I was just, you know, and I get the kind of, also the kind of heavy music that I was listening to was like, Celtic Frost and uh, Slayer and uh, some Judas Priest, a lot of Black Sabbath. I wasn't, I didn't really like where heavy metal was at at that moment. And so how, we wouldn't you, have been invited to the when, heavy metal. So what did you think when you heard, you know, um, Run DMC and Aerosmith? Did that change your life at all? I loved that record. I thought it sounded great. It didn't change my life. What changed my life was when Public Enemy was sampling Slayer. That was it. It was like, fucking hell. That, that is a thing. They've got like the best of both worlds there. They've got the heaviest metal and the most heaviest hip hop. And they've managed to fuse it together into something. And, and, but they, they were, yeah, that was the one that changed it for me. When I liked a King of Rock by Run DMC, that's, that had more of a heavy vibe to it. And I like the Beastie Boys use of guitars. Yeah, I did, yes. but I like I like that Run DMC uh, Walk This Way record. It's a, it's just a, it's, it's a kind of, yeah. It's a there's a bit of a kind of compromise involved to get it. I, it it cro- it crossed over because it was a great party song, really. You know, yeah, and the same with Beastie Boys, Fight for Your Right, really. But I remember yeah. hearing Public Enemy, and I think it was Anthrax doing a track together, and it was. That was that was kind of blue. blue yes, they they did bring the noise, but that was a couple of years later. What I loved was on "It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back," which is his second album. There was that track "Channel Zero, which is like for, for me was the sort of blueprint of like we were like fucking hell. You could actually have, you know, you could have thrash metal essentially and hip hop, 
and we were just like we've got to do this we can we could do this you know yes. and they just sampled at one slayer riff from uh Ray, um angel of death from angel of death yeah uh and yes. uh, it's just one little loop that goes round and round and round and we were like we could make songs like this you know <laughs> because so that's what Yes, and that's what happened. But then as we trucked into the dear old 90s, it was really funny because the kind of image that you, the band had was very much of that kind of, all those bands that you kind of, you know, went along with, but you weren't really part of, which I'm slightly like, oh, God, that's a surprise. That's slightly... Well, we, I mean, I don't want to sound completely dismissive of everything. There's some great stuff going on there. Um, it's just that that there was nowhere else for us to be and yes. those how can i put it i like pop will eat itself a lot i like them I, I thought they were doing something good they had they were kind of they 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 were doing something really kind of exciting and they weren't making something too poppy and slushy i didn't you know the kind of indie pop music that i liked was you know things like i suppose like cocteau twins and this mortal coil and you know, I wasn't really into to, uh, jangly guitars. No. I didn't like that sound. I didn't like jangly guitars. I liked heavy guitars or kind of lush psychedelic guitars. That was my texture. It's like textures, you know. What kind of texture do you like? Indie music in the late 80s, early 90s was all kind of semi-clean chorus jangly guitars or very, like... I like bands like Ride and Lush and that Curve and those. I like that shoegazy sound. That was I, I like that. But yeah, I just didn't have any affinity for kind of what I either student pop is what I sounded yes, to me. That's right, student. Or, yes, it sounded like studenty, you know. And and uh, but you know, I've got a lot of you know, I've I've got a lot of. Uh, space in my heart for all those things now like for example i could not listen to the smiths when i was i was just like this is the most whiny why the, it was the textures that just drove me nuts his voice was like completely anathema to me like oh why everyone always sounds the same i mean like we used to just do go off on kind of rant morrissey like improv for ages just taking the piss out of it we we couldn't we were like, how do you guys listen to this shit? <laughs> but now, in hindsight, he's a poet. He was—he certainly was. He's a bit of a strange bigot now, but he—I I, can—I—I I put my hand on my heart and say I think Morrissey's an incredible lyricist. And well, it's funny because uh, you mentioned about you know that hair metal. There's a song. I can't remember which is the band, but Miley Cyrus covered it about something like a rose, something like a title, like a rose. And, and that's one of my guilty pleasures that I think. Is it every rose has a thorn. Yes. And Miley yeah. Cyrus has done a cover of it and I really like it, but. <laughs> and even Poison had a couple of tunes, you know, like <laughs> I, I've got, you know, I could sit here. No, some of that stuff's great. Danger, Danger had a couple of songs. Uh, uh, LA Guns had some songs. Like, there's some great stuff yeah. from over there. You're from, young from enough, that. and you've taken enough drugs, and you're having that sex drugs, sex drugs and rock and roll, which is probably the last time that could happen. You know, you just they came out and wrote something quite like 
most of it not good, but one or two were like, actually, this is good. You know, you wouldn't want to hang out with those guys, especially then. But you know, no, like a right. No, I don't think that was good. No, most of them sex addicts and drug addicts and miserable people. But um, they had there's a I'm kind of having a there's a, some great books by Chuck Klosterman because I was like, why do I like this stuff so much? And then there's this American journalist Chuck Klosterman who wrote some books, basically a kind of deconstructing it and explaining why like no that was that was the working class music of the time you know that was people who were working hard uh you know all, half the songs are about that you know we work like dogs so we want to have a good time when we're bon jersey yeah, so, living on a prayer yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh no I, I wasn't so into bon jovi but but we're all right man like um I like the guitar sounds. I like the guitar sounds. I like the, some of the riffs are amazing, you know. Yeah, no, it's hard to dislike. I'm pretty open stuff now. But yes, so look, as I've we met... got, have you met them? Who? No, did you, I thought you were going to say you met them, but you haven't, have you? The only person I've met from that scene was Steven Tyler from Aerosmith, and I accidentally burned a, a hole in his silk shirt with my cigarette, so I felt really, but really, really bad, but he was very, cordial about it he just said oh it's okay ma'am just adds color (laughs) uh, thank god he didn't go up in smoke no he he was he was very very sweet he's like a little old lady now he does a little old lady doesn't he poor old chap (laughs) yeah but he's lovely yes i know they're all a little bit wrinkled aren't they but look then then coming going into the sort of the major years john major years you were sort of right there at that kind of height of like you said, you know, there was a definite scene. And I remember a lot of people with dreadlocks, you know, wanting to play the didgeridoo, smoking lots of cannabis. And, you know, you were one of the bands that everyone, you know, there were certain, there were certain albums everyone owned, didn't they? In the 70s, it was Pete Frampton Comes Live, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, a bit of you know, Led Zeppelin. Then a bit further into the 90s, you know, if you were an alternative kid, you had the dreads, you had your levelers, you had your Chumbawamba, and you had Senses first album, didn't you? Let's face it. Oh man, you know, I'm sh- yes, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, um, we we so what we did share with those people was was the politics. So that I think we've cut. You found the the the, the connection. Yes, um, we were going to get a bus. We were going to get it, on the road. It was hard for us because we wanted to do like you know we wanted to do anti-fascist uh, action stuff. Uh, we wanted to do uh, the anti-Nazi leagues. We and and, but those were the only. Ba- you know, it's like once you're going in a certain direction, you can't really choose the people who are walking next to you. It's like, like they were nice people and everything. I, I'm just talking purely musically. It's like it was. It was weird to be kind of linked to that um, because I mean, those the, our record sounds nothing like that. The stuff that you're yeah, you know, you're talking about, which is, yeah, we didn't sound like Chumbawamba. Chumbawamba were doing like, you know, English folk songs, and uh, the Levelers were, you know, it was a lot of it was a kind of barn dance sound that they were going for. Yeah, you know, and everyone and, also had there was Doctor Didge, wasn't there? And there was the uh... oh god, don't please, <laughs> <laughs> I hated this stuff. I just hated it all. I, <laughs> I, I feel really bad now because people are going, oh, you know, they're going to, they'll be thinking, you know, like, oh, you know, 
But it's kind so, of funny. But uh, but then on the other side, you had all the rave parties and the free parties that everyone was also getting into, and the Orb had been huge, hadn't they? And they were still sort of headlining Glastonbury at that stage, which was that stuff was good, you know. And that and that had a you know that counterculture and what the youth movement because everyone has, I suppose, when when you're young, you do have a sort of five year period where you focus so much attention on to going to the festivals, you listen to the next record, you you you're just kind of going to every gig you can, and then things happen and you have to start making you can't always go out every night can you so you you know you captured a site uh, a zeitgeist because a lot of people I've spoke to said everything it's all about timing you know there were bands there's a guy called Richard Strange from the Doctors of Madness who said he was too they were two years too early for punk but all the people who came to see him then came you know formed bands like the Sex Pistols and the Dan and Clash but but he was like okay. shit we, we, we're, we're doing this music in 75 but punk hasn't happened you know another year another two and we'd have been like but then they just felt a bit too old you know so you it's about timing if you'd happened before or after you'd have probably gone shit we'd slightly yeah yes it, we were slightly anachronistic but we've always been a bit anachronistic we've always been sort of out of of time but that's sort of its magic really is because it doesn't feel like it didn't feel like any of the other things of its time in a way um it was just much heavier and much more intense and the, the what's interesting now is that what for example so the, yeah i'm sort of piecing it together in my mind just talking to you um the, the, by the time we kind of had some success with that record and videos started going on tv and going in on mtv europe and stuff um that's the people that listened to it then were all the heavy metal people they were like oh this is metal you know they because they didn't know any of those associations and they taken on its actual value they were like oh this is a metal band you know this is a metal band with weird a kind of weird englishy psychedelic element and rap and rap music so yes. it's just that when we were started when we were starting the only people that kind of were outside of the mainstream uh, were was yeah it was basically the enemy in the melody maker scene and and for some reason like you say it was that festy type scene but yeah um i have really fond memories of all that stuff i did like the rave stuff we all loved that sort of rave music and we went through like <clears throat> yeah i i i befriended uh, adamski do you remember adamski god yes live and direct we're still really good friends um and we just created this kind of it was like a shell company this band called uh, jet slags and we just went they because he knew we could get gigs and all we wanted to do is just like go to raves and get paid to take drugs and muck about and that's what we did for a couple of years and um so yeah i went to a lot of those events just but just to have fun really yeah. um there was a little bit ravey kind of music on that first album there was some 303s and a couple of 808 there was a couple of ravey instruments used on it because it was just part of the sound around us so it did sort of get sucked into it a tiny bit yeah because on, on... i remember dansky and dansky came along and i loved it first album his second one which was kind of had more sort of songs on sounded a bit hit and miss but his first one and then there was a guy called guru josh with time for the guru who everyone knows oh, yeah. the massive saxophone sound and everything <laughs> 
yeah. the saxophone. Yeah, yeah. It was an awesome sound. But I have got a weird Adamski moment as um, a story, which I'll briefly say, because he was playing in, in Great Yarmouth and I'd gone to see him and I did, did an interview with him. And he was then going on to Norwich and I got in my car and he got in his kind of van and suddenly like six police cars just drove up and just completely cornered him. And I was like, shit, well, thank God I didn't get in the van with you. And he just kind of got arrested for the night because I think, I think they were expecting him going off to a, doing an illegal rave. And it was like, I've never seen anything like that in my life, but it was really like, fuck, you know, that was a bit weird. They just like, mm-hmm. boom, it was like, no, you're not going on, mate. You know, we're going to arrest you for the night and you're not going to be playing any raves in that culture. Because it was a kind of a thing, wasn't it? The rave scene at that time. Yeah, it was a, it was a massive youth movement. It was, a, it was like the biggest, the last really really big kind of subculture i'd say yes and the and, and parliament weren't going to let that happen so look with all the you know with a lot of the interviews i've done there's most bands have a, like a five-year narrative now in the 80s you probably didn't quite get this one because you know they would get together they'd make a sound john peel would sort of you know pick it up play the single then get the session and then you get the first album, things going really well. Then the second album, things are a bit tricky. And I find that anybody who ever does America comes back going, oh my God, we can't, we're just going to split now because we can't cope with it. So you had that first album, which was The Honeymoon, and you had Switch, which just like everybody loved it, didn't they? You, that was your 99 Red Balloons by Nana, wasn't it? The world <laughs> went crazy with that song. It just was there, wasn't it? Everywhere you went, it was just like, Switch. I guess I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know. That's that's very kind of you. That's your '99 Red Balloons. Um, Make a switch. I, yeah, I don't know. I honestly, uh, our our thing was for a start. We would have. I, I didn't really listen to John Peel that much before. I didn't really understand. I was listening to hip hop and heavy metal, and I, I now. If he was around doing that, or if I was a little, had been a little bit older, I would have loved it. By the time I kind of understood what he was doing, um, I was I, I, like, yeah, I had already, we had already, I met him at some festivals, and he told me off for not giving him, sending him our music. I was like, oh, and he's like, because he felt like we, he was like, you should have just sent it. And I was like, I, I, I would have if I thought that, you know, we just didn't have a clue as to what, you know, that he would have played that. We didn't know the history of it. Yeah. We thought he was an experimental DJ, but he, he was a lovely guy and he was really so supportive. And um, yeah, no, uh, for that five year thing, it, we basically, the material that was on that first record, it's the, it's the classic thing, you know, you spend a few years beforehand uh playing shows and playing those songs and they get refined and then you finally record them and you know people love that music and they're buying the music that those people who already know you are buying the music that they know and love um and then you've got to write a load more stuff but we 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 basically toured that stuff before for about three years recorded it and then toured it for another three years it's like we we went so long on that one record that I started to lose my mind <laughs> and I was starting to, um, I wanted to uh, learn to sing and do a different kind of like, yeah, I was, cause I was sort of growing up in public with music and I, I wanted to learn to be a different kind of vocalist, not, you know, have more kind of range and, 
So I started the thing at this thing called Lodestar with the drummer. And for some reason they couldn't convince me to do both at the same time. So I just thought I'm, I'm, I'm out of sensor. And uh, so I, I, cause I couldn't go, we went back in to try and write a second record and everything that we started doing just sounded like a kind of, for me in any case, just sounded like I was clutching at straws trying to recreate the, the kind of what we'd done on the first record. And there's, it's so dense that record and there's so much on it that it was very hard to sort of, it, we needed a break basically and we didn't take the break. And you're right, America was very tricky. We tried to tour America and uh, the, like we wanted to go with a band. There's no point just going on your own. That's a nightmare. It's like you're gonna be, you know, nobody knows you, so you won't be playing to anybody. So you have to go with it. Your first time round, you've got to go with someone else. All the bands that we wanted to go with, it just never lined up. We wanted to go with Faith No More. We wanted to go with, like, anyone, Rage Against the Machine, the Beastie Boys, any of the kind of bands that we felt an affinity with. But it just never lined up. And the only person that kept saying, oh, do you want to come with me? It was Moby. And it was it was just... It was a mistake to go with him because we would go out in front of 20,000 Moby fans who were basically little green dyed haired, like rave dummy sucking kids. And we would just pummel them every day. And they would just, you could see their faces. They were like, this is not what I came to see. I want to see, you know, dancey rave things. And they, they were not happy. So it, it was, although we were playing to lots of people every night, it was about a month and a half of, it was pretty grim. You know, it doesn't matter how many people you're playing to, how, how full out, it's like, if, you, if those people don't, are not interested in seeing you night after night, it's very wearing, it's very yeah. tiring. Well, it's interesting. I did an interview with Fast Eddie for Motorhead and, um, and you know, it's kind of an interesting story because they had two good albums and then the third one, he started to produce it, or I think he did, which was a mistake. And then they toured and the album hadn't come out. And so, the, you know, and Phil Taylor wanted to play the new material. The fans hadn't heard it. And there was this real problem. And the fans were like, I don't know, what, what the hell are you playing? We don't know what this is. We want to hear, yeah. the, we want to hear the hits. And he said, you know, God, it kind of starts to go really wrong. And that was kind of the end of Motorhead. And that, they're fans. So they're going to give them the benefit of the doubt to some degree, you know what I mean? But but like this was like, these kids had no idea who we were, you know, they weren't interested in it. It wasn't within their wheelhouse at all. And to do, it was, it was pretty punishing to have to go on tour, with, you know, have to keep going out and sort of just, it, the, you know, you're just kind of pouring what you're doing into a well and there's no, it's not even land, it's just not landing anywhere, they're just, they're not upset. They're just looking at you confused. Yes. And there's no, you well, know, the support, it's... The support band is a really weird gig, isn't it? Because, you, I don't know about you, but sometimes, you know, when you're younger, you watch the support band. As you get older, you sort of think, look, you know, I'm going to give it a couple of seconds and then I'm out of here. If it's not quite what you want. It's a kind of a strange number, isn't it? It's a strange position. But if 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 it's the right like two three but you know if it's a good package and the two things are somehow complementary it's amazing because you're like you know yeah no i i 
the support band thing, it's like all or nothing. It's either going to flop dreadfully and everyone's just going to go to the bar or it's going to be like suddenly everyone's pinned to something that they don't know. Yeah. And they're like, oh, that's where I discovered it. So, yeah, it's, it, it, it's really all or nothing yeah. with that. In this case, it was nothing. It was absolutely like banging your head against the brick wall. And, um, but we did some great supports around Europe. Like in Europe, we were fine. We did, we went with Rollins band. We, uh, we, we like, that was like the right thing to do. You know, there were some things that were, you know, and people still come up to me about those shows, you know, our own shows and support shows at that time. Like people remember that stuff to this day. They, is that's when it's right it's so right you know yes so did it feel difficult when they brought out the second album and you were like oh that's a bit odd no not at all because it felt completely normal and natural i just i I just didn't want to be i tried to be involved in it we did go and do some recording for the second one and i was just like i just need to do something else i mean and yeah i i i needed to be out of it for a while yeah. I, I was it's still crazy I think they were as well I think you know and it was yeah it was I think it was just really tough for them to try and navigate that the the, the difficult second album it's <laughs> such a clean I know but, uh, and it's also lacking of a manager or somebody who can steer it and I always remember sort of listening manager, but it was it's I you know I got to take responsibility we we, you know, we still made the artistic choices and where we wanted to go. I was really happy with the Lodestar album that I made. <laughs> I was like, I need to do something I'm going to be really happy with, um, where there's less people to kind of balance it with. Um, you know, everyone's tired. They've been, you've been living with these people like on top of each other for six years in bunks, in tour buses. You know, you're psychologically exhausted with the relationships themselves. Yes. And you need to. So it it worked fine actually because by the time we got back together, like like all of us, um, we were actually happy to see each other and wanted to work and wanted to do stuff together. So from then on, uh, I've been happy with everything that we've done. It's been like, you know, the first, uh, the second album. I, I think it's great. It's just it's it's like a different band. It sounds like a different band because it's there's you know it's not driven by the rap music <clears throat> it sounds more like the band did before i joined it which is a kind of strange ethereal cocteau twinsy kind of band with heavy guitars <laughs> yes because i know i always remember a documentary i saw about bands and bands reforming and Stuart Copeland from the police said that um, they did one of those tours which was going to be worth lots of money and everyone enjoyed, was enjoying it apart from him and Sting which is like two-thirds of the band and then they decided yeah. to have band therapy and he said actually on this occasion it worked because they were able to sort of explain what it was like for each other and how yeah. their comments actually were really painful even though they didn't right. show it just drove that you know, like emotional, like, God, I really can't stand it. And then they had this conversation, they dealt with it and, and sort of managed to finish the tour, which I think was, I think they wanted to for lots of reasons. So did you ever feel like, God, if only we'd sat down and really had a proper conversation, that could have just steered it a little bit easier? Um, we didn't, like, fall out at the end. You know, we, it wasn't like we fell out. I just wanted to do something different. So 
we didn't, we didn't, yeah, we just, we didn't fall out. We didn't, we just, I just needed to do something that sounded more like what I, yeah, I just needed to do something which sounded with, with singing. I wanted to do a band that was like a smaller unit, um, a slightly more kind of traditional bass, drums, guitar, vocal thing. Um, and I wanted to learn what I could do with my voice. And it, uh, yeah, I was happy with the results of that. I was really, you know, it was a little bit raw and a little bit my, my singing, you know, I was sort of learning to sing, but I think we pulled it off. And yeah. so I don't, I don't, um, I, I didn't feel like we would have needed therapy. Later on, we probably could have done with something like that. And yeah, it's it's strange looking back on these things in hindsight. You you, you realize that you could have done things a little bit both. Yeah. If I'd read my mind to it, it's not a lot. But nowadays, I do like I, do, I have two bands. I have uh, you know I'm in two bands. I uh, you know put vocals on other people's projects and i do yeah it's easy it's just now it seems easier but then it was it, you're young and it was just i was so uncompromised i was pretty uncompromised i think uh, yeah now i'm much more I, I don't compromise anything artistically but as a person and to, to work with i think i'm probably a less a lot less on guard and a lot less kind of yes I guess and, that. And did you have a good experience on Ultimate Records? Because they were quite the label in the early nineties, weren't they? During that kind of Brit poppy period. I loved those guys. I I genuinely loved them. They were so funny and so f sort of like freewheeling. They it was just two blokes basically, Andy and Morris, and they they were a hundred percent supportive of us, and they were just the best people to have behind you. They were just like. Do what you you do what you got to do do what you want to do man like okay what have you got how let, you know how are we going to do this you know they weren't they were never like oh we, we think it should be a bit more blah 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 we reckon it should they never ever stuck their nose in it and that's that you know that's what you want you don't want the worst is like people trying to art direct your band you know Yes. Well, I know quite a few people who were on indie labels, did that first album, Really Please, and then it was like, okay, Virgin Records wants us to do, has given us this offer and they've taken it. And then it's like, oh God, this is a disaster. They've got this producer and they're saying you've got to do this. They've got the click track. They've got, you know, like art directions. Even one band got offered to support Take That and he was like, oh my God, I don't want Take That. I, I, you know, we're an indie yeah. band. I want to be more like psychedelic West Coast, not Take That, you know, so... They finished, you know, that <laughs> it was like they all had a meeting in the pub and said, like, I'm not into this anymore, let's just walk away. So, it is, you know, and keeping that artistic integrity is probably very important. But, but which band was that? That was the band called the Railway Children, who were in Manchester, and then there was another band I called the, the, yeah, the, Red, yeah. the Red Guitars, who were from Hull, and they both signed. I mean, there was, you know, there's been others as well where they're just. This hasn't kind of happened for them. But obviously, you know, and I was talking to Jim Bob and Carter, there is, there's always that need to keep making music, isn't it? There's, and, and most people, even if they 
if it's different now, there is still that drive to want to still create that album to go out touring. And that still happened with you. And obviously the voice and singing is, is your sort of, has become your passion and obsession, hasn't it? Mm. Yeah, it's just, um, uh, it's, it's uh, the two things that I listened to when I was younger are the things that have just stayed with me, really. The hip hop thing, the rap, rap music and heavy metal music and the kind of ultimate evolutions of those things. Um, so like sensor is a good, it's, it's, it works really, really well still. The, the kind of the, the different elements in it work really well. It still sounds like out of time, but like it sounds, and it's always sounded like anachronistic, not of its time. Um, not in a bad way though. I mean, it's still, yeah, I'm really happy with those, the, the the records you know I feel like you know the the performances on them are really uh, they're kind of yeah they get a bit more subtle maybe um, like the lyrical ideas are kind of uh, yeah I'm happy with all that stuff and singing wise like I went through lots of different incarnations until I found uh, when I because I live in Paris now I'm in Paris. Um, and uh, I formed a band here, which is the first band that I actually kind of formed. Like, okay, I want to do something like this. Who's on the same wavelength? Who wants to do the same thing? And gathered people around me and, and we formed this band called Fiend. And we're like, we're writing our fourth album now. And we just went on tour last summer, just went on tour before it, <laughs> this <laughs> weird year happened. Yes. Um, we, had, we had a great tour uh, supporting Tool, like, stadium shows uh around europe and uh that band and the, the my work on that i'm really happy with um that's yeah that's kind of for me the the two things that i sort of try to develop and ex, you know expand is the rap thing and the kind of heavy metal thing the singing singing and guitar playing and those things I think now I'm at a place where I'm very happy with it. Yes. Um, but we, you know. I was going to yeah. say, I mean, because on your fifth album, which was actually quite a few years old, that was with Pledge Music, music, wasn't it? Yes. And how did yeah. that sort of work? Um, pardon? That worked really well. And I, I mean, yeah, so because I, I, um, that was uh, David Wakelin from The Beat, they did an album on Pledge, and he was saying it's kind of a lot of pressure. He felt a lot of pressure when um, you realise that your fans have invested in it and you really want to, you know, deliver a good kind of product, for want of a better mm -hmm. word. So how did you kind of feel, instead of it being this kind of record company, but your fans, did you feel a little bit like, God, we're going to have to come up with something really good with this, guys? I, I feel that all the time anyway so there was no difference for me it was like i'm not going to put out anything that doesn't sound amazing i, I refuse to do it <laughs> you know so there's no there's no no i didn't feel any extra pressure what i did feel was like the massive kind of support feeling of like people and sort of trust people were like a kind of investment not just with people's attention but their their, their money they're saying yep yeah, i'm, I'm I'm ready. I'll put my money down before I've even heard it. Yeah, that's that's. So I did feel that, but I didn't. I didn't feel any kind of that I had to step up because I have to. I feel like that 
so much anyway with anything that I, anything that we release. Yeah. I, 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 so that luckily I managed to sort of, yeah, it, it didn't affect me in that way. Yeah, because yeah. it could be worrying. I see what you're saying. I guess so. And just, I mean, just on on the current situation. I mean, how are you feeling? Because obviously you had dates lined up, and that's been pulled. I mean, obviously a lot of people's kind of um, kind of I suppose business model is about touring and and t-shirts and stuff like that and merchandise as well as you know pushing stuff at the gigs. I mean, so what's it feeling like? Because a few people have just been just working on an album for about three years have just suddenly went, oh shit we were going to tour this year and now it's not going to happen. Well, it's a, it's pretty catastrophic. It has been for the last year. I don't know exactly where it's going. Some people seem to be in France coming out already make doing little shows. My friend, Mike Ladd is doing playing gigs, uh, starting to play gigs. Um, I don't know what the situation is in England, but, um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's uh it's going to be very challenging i think to get this back together especially in america and in in uh in uh the uk where the lockdowns weren't very precise um they weren't very kind of strict in france they did an extremely strict one where i live and i basically didn't leave my house my apartment for three months i left like for one hour a week they were deadly serious about it and the numbers just reflect that. So, um, the in yeah, it's, for musicians, um, it's you. What can you do? You can sort of uh, well. There's lots of things that you can do on your own as a musician. You can write stuff. You can practice stuff. You can work. But you know, on on yeah. your what whatever it is that you do, you can you can sort of build. There's a lot of things that you can do on your own as a musician and I, I have no long-term worries about the you know people are always want to go going to want to see bands and go and see groups so as soon as it's really safe enough to do it they'll be doing it you know I, that doesn't bother me really sure so what would just lastly what would you say to a if you could say something to an 18 year old self starting out that you think after all these decades in you know in this kind of career what what would you sort of just whisper into their ear as a sort of a few bullet points that you think, oh, kid, just listen to this from an old man. <laughs> um, uh, I would have said, don't break up the band. Don't, don't leave the band. You can always take a break, even though like that, you, you know, management and people like that will say like, no, no, we've got to keep going. We've got to keep going. We're going to lose momentum. Just you, you, you're never going to lose more momentum than if you, you leave the band. So yes. that's what I, that was for, for me. But apart from that, I am absolutely no regrets. Happy with the way that creatively, the way, no, you know, I, what I am going to say is what I already knew then. It's like, you just don't compromise, no compromise. Don't compromise the the artistic aspect of what you're doing. So when you There's see people no... like David Bowie or, or Lemmy, who sadly and I, yeah. I mean those those two guys I've often looked at as people who just st- st- stayed with the music and just did their thing and just look yeah. at their, both their career. They they didn't sort of like 
deviate particularly from what they really want. Well, you know, Bowie, Bowie brought out some odd albums, but that was fine. And Lemmy stuck with rock and roll and that was fine as well. So that that's two examples of no compromise, but very different. Lemmy basically, you know, stuck to hit like a very, very limited kind of palette of textures. Whereas Bowie went through constant reinvention. And that was, uh, that's, both of those are, are kind of, uh, yeah, they're um, stellar examples of, of, you know, an uncompromising sort of artistic Yes, because so, at the same age, and whenever they got asked, you know, who were their first musical influence, they both said Little Richard, and then kind mm -hmm. of Elvis and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of interesting that one spark, Little Richard, kind of made these two very interesting characters who I sort of mm -hmm. find fascinating. So yeah, it is. It's yeah, I mean, I can see why. I think if I'd been, a, you know, young teenager when Little Richard's records came out, I would have felt the same way. It's electrifying, isn't it? It's just it's like a, a spaceship landing. It's like, yes. what is this? So yeah, I, I completely get it. It's pure rock and roll. It's total showmanship. It's, uh, it's I, 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 I get it. And it's do, really. Do you also feel a bit like a, a rock and roll survivor now? Because because at first, you know, when you're in an in, you weren't in an indie band in the eighties, but you know, I you was. In a way, in the sense of an independent record. Yeah, record. okay. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, you don't expect sometimes people to survive, but then you have, and then you must meet other people that you went, blimey, we started that journey. And you feel like, oh, it was only a few years, and you think, shit, no, no, it was like 30, maybe 40 years ago we've been doing this, and we're <laughs> still here. Do, does that feel kind of amazing when you see and bump into people backstage and probably some people you thought, we'd have never spoken back then, but now, fuck it, who cares, we'll have a chat because... Weird. Oh, no, I mean, I was always on really, you know, I, I, I was always really happy and friendly to, to, you know, happy to speak to people, even from bands which I thought were pretty shitty, you know, um, that's like, and I'm, I consider myself extremely lucky to still be able to put out records when I would say 95% of the people um, who, uh, who are contemporaries probably have just moved on you know they like they went through that cycle and then just left it at that whereas we were lucky enough we had a big enough sort of fan base and loyal enough fan base <clears throat> that we could sort of constantly explore the thing and keep going every few years when we're actually ready and we have something to say put something new out and so i'm i feel extremely lucky and, and also that the kind of especially the kind of heavy metal, the, the people who are more the heavy metal fans. Like we, when we played like Download a few years ago, or we played the Hellfest in France. Every time I'm like, oh God, this is going to be, you know, we're not heavy enough to be in here. This isn't really like our world. I wonder if anyone's going to show up and like, you know, it's like thousands of people at these. And you think, oh yeah, we obviously mean a lot to these people, you know, and it's always a, an incredible touching moment when you realize no 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 the people people still fucking love this this music and they love you know they they're not just like waiting for the old ones they 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 know the music they know what's what we've been doing over the years so um it's interesting you probably went through that whole castle morton free festival moment as well as your metal phase as well so it's kind of an interesting combination of 
totally. I mean, those two groups don't particularly mix, do they, in any way? There are places where it overlaps, like, you know, like Killing Joke or like Populate Yourself, something where there's heavy, you know, things that would, there's a sort of punky thing that touches both of them. I suppose it's like punk inspired music is like the kind of the link maybe but you're right they're pretty much there's not much of a subset of the two things no. so in the end it's just individual taste you know and people do tend to kind of sort of try and blend in with whatever the thing that's happening around them so like you might get people who listen to Slayer and listen to sort of Celtic Frost at those things, but they're not, that's not going to be their kind of main focus. Uh, That's not going to be what's visible when you see them. It's hard to, uh, it's very, very hard to, uh, to kind of. uh, You've got your, your tribe, as they say, you know, that's keeping it going. So it's. it's Yeah. But even within that, there's, it's quite disparate. Some people, are much more kind of indie, rocky sort of, so, and some of them are just obvious metal fans, you know. Yes. And so, but I'm I'm very very grateful. I think like metal fans are are extremely loyal, and our fans specifically, like that's it's, it's like yeah, they're they're extremely uh, they're resilient and loyal and. And uh, they're bringing their kids along to it now. And, you know, they've all got stories about, you know, the first time they heard it or yes. what the, the music means to them on some level. It's very, it's quite touching. Absolutely. I know Lemmy always said it was the German market that kept them going when everyone else had sort of abandoned Motorhead during those kind of right. other periods. Yeah, that's that difficult moment that we were talking about, like what, where heavy metal was, I think, uh, in the sort of around the time when we were sort of picking up um yeah i think it was a hard time for for heavy metal because it it was you know a really die hard people that kept it really burning before like all these other waves came and sort of reignited it but yeah i think that's our fans are like the equivalent of the German fans. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Now, look, just last one, because I, because you yeah. mentioned a book and I, I love a good book, a recommendation. You mentioned this guy called, what was the name of the book that he did? Chuck somebody on the, Which one? Oh, Chuck Glosterman. What was the Chuck Glosterman with a K. Um, yeah. He's done a couple of books about glam metal, glam kind of hair metal. And, and uh, but he sort of, deconstructs it in a really interesting way he's very yes it's very very working class because actually you know on that subject i mean punk you know this is a slightly sweeping statement but you know as much more sort of art school people with probably degrees whereas i know from from my background people who went to heavy metal left school at 16 they didn't have any o levels they never went to further education you know they went to the factory i mean it was a bit of a cliche but it was very you know we you know everyone loves status quo in the area that i lived in you know it was kind of met you know that 70s rock you know yeah and it was just yeah it was kind of very honest but very sort of working class without any pretense and it was quite yeah and and you weren't going to sort of listen to the sex pistols or the clash because it would have not come into their kind of musical you know palette really yeah that's right there's a there's a sort of uh 
yeah, that that kind of rock music, which then influenced that hair metal music, was pretty working class music, really. Um, and certainly in America, um, yeah, like bands like Free and Aerosmith and um, uh, yeah, all those kind of heavy bands, they were they were the working class people's bands, you know, like exactly it's same in England, but you know, we just had our own versions of it. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I have a lot of time for, uh, kind of seventies rock and, uh, Classic. what might be considered dad rock. <laughs> I, I like it. I like <laughs> a lot of it. Well, you know, Black Sabbath's first album is just awesome. You know, it's got everything oh, you ever want. I, I, there's something great. Uh, I think, I would say Black Sabbath is probably my favorite band of all time. If you had to, it's just uh, a kind of, there's so much creation on there. All heavy metal music, all doom, stoner, uh, sludge, um, uh, even sort of. And political protest as well. Yeah. Yeah, man. Absolutely. It's, you know, and, and then you got fairies don't wear boots, which was just a, Interesting. Yeah, well, that's about a guy who's just done too much drugs. And, the, you know, if you listen to the end of it, the doctor says, well, you should stop taking so much acid then. <laughs> I know. They're such a great band. Anyway, look, this has been amazing. Well, thank you ever so much for this. And um, so you're in Paris at the moment or France. Yep. I've been here a long time. Right. I live in Paris. And uh, it's great. There's wine, women and song. And 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 uh, corona-free uh, environment as well. It's yeah, definitely corona reduced compared to the UK. Yeah, they don't give a shit now, do they? They just fuck it. We're not going to bother. Pubs are open up. Everybody, it's back to normal. I don't know. I don't know. I I really have so little understanding of what's going on over there. I, I just hear what my family tell me, but um, yeah, they're they're still being incredibly careful. I think my family, but it's. I don't know. It's, it, you could kind of see it coming from that first little uh, briefing that Bojo gave. You're like, oh my God, they've got nothing, have they? <laughs> it's like, it was just, they had nothing. They, they had no plan. Their plan was to try and let it burn through. You're like, what? What are you thinking, you fucking idiot? Like, you got, yeah, they're just like all automatically saying how many people they think are probably going to die and we, we should just be comfortable with that. Like, what? What are you saying? You know, it's, it's, is he, ah, oh, man, we could, that, don't get me started. Yeah. Don't no, get, no. I know it's, it's too difficult to stop in it really. <laughs> Hopefully. Anyway, look, best of luck and thank you ever so much. And uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Nice to meet you, man. Okay. Take care and best of luck for the future. Okay, Thanks, see friend. you. Bye. Bye-bye. I know, saying goodbye is always so tricky. Anyway, I'm getting better. And that is the end of the interview. That was Hathan Al-Sayed from Censor to talk about life, love, poetry. Anyway, and all the other stuff, as I often say. Yes, repetition. Um, yes, so if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do at C86show. It's always nice to hear from you. You know, keep it positive people you know life is too short um and also all these uh, interviews have been archived and you can find those in podcast land and that 
is via Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. So there, check it out. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.